This is the word of God, 1 Corinthians 5 through 6, 8. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord, Jesus, on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new, unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. All right, are you ready for this series? It is definitely going to get intense over the next five weeks as we deal with some topics that are going to hit very close to home and are controversial, and uh, I think some of the most neglected and avoided teachings in the, in the New Testament. These things are, don't get talked about a whole lot. So, if you do have little ones here today, these are messages that you may not necessarily want to have to go home and talk about later. This might be a great time to take them to our kids' ministry where they'll have an awesome experience, all right? So if this is your first time here, we're really glad that you're with us today. And if you're not a Christian, you're off the hook. You, know, you, you, you get a free pass today 
In fact, you may be glad that you're not a Christian after you hear what I'm going to talk about today. And I'll tell you why. Because there are different expectations for Christians as opposed to those who are not Christian. See, we're called as as believers to live our lives according to God's Word revealed to us in Scripture, specifically in the Christian Scriptures in the New Testament. We have been given the Holy Spirit to empower us to actually live out what God tells us to do. So how in the world could we ever expect somebody who's not a Christian to live by our values when they neither know God's Word and will and don't have the Holy Spirit in order to enable them to do that? So we've already looked at the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church he started in the Greek city of Corinth some 2,000 years ago. It was a bunch of divided and dysfunctional believers who were struggling with a lot of the same issues that we're still struggling with today. And now in this section, verses, uh, chapters 5 through 7, we're going to be dealing with some relational problems going on in Corinth. And Paul's going to seek to set them straight, correct them, present what God's ideals are when it comes to these moral behaviors regarding relationships about sex and marriage and divorce and singleness. And it begins this section uh, by talking about how we make proper judgments about these things. And I think the one verse that a lot of people know, non-Christians know this verse more than any other. They may not know anything else about the Bible or understand anything else about Jesus, but they know that the Bible says, Christians should not judge, right? They know that verse, do not judge. We're not supposed to be judging other people. But guess what? That's only partially right. Uh, Because Christians actually are called to judge others. But here's the caveat. We're called only to judge other Christians, not those who are not Christians. So here's our big idea. We are called to rightly judge sin within the church, not sinners outside the church. In fact, as Christians, we're called to be accountable to each other and how we live our lives. But for some reason, we like to <laughs> talk much more about the behaviors of those who are not a part of the church. Right? That we, it's perplexing that we do that because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, what business is of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. So I'm going to break down this passage into three parts here. First, don't judge sinners outside the church. Now, of course, we all have to make judgments every day about what's right and wrong. And yes, we, we, uh, of course, have to judge behaviors. But we're not to judge people's hearts because only God knows a person's true motives, intents, and conditions, right? So there's a difference between judging behaviors and being judgmental. And judgmentalism is like an attitude that tries to put other people down and make them feel inferior. So listen, if you're not a Christian, we love you. We're glad you're here. You are welcome here, absolutely. And I'm not God, and I'm not the one who's going to judge who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Uh, That's his call to make. But what I'm trying to do is point you to the fact that at the end, we're all going to stand before Jesus Christ. And you're going to have to deal with him right? And so what I'm trying to do is teach you what God says about how you're going to face him and what you're going to do about that. My, my goal here is not to get you to just clean up your life so you're a better person. My goal is to lead you to Jesus, to the one who can actually forgive you and, and transform your life. So as Christians, what we're called to do is be in the world but not of the world, which means we're not supposed to isolate ourselves from sinful people. 
What we want to do is try to separate ourselves from sinful behaviors. We actually want to be a friend to sinners like Jesus was, right? And yet he remained sinless. And I think he reserved some of his harshest criticism for the religious hypocritical people, right? The Pharisees, while he treated outsiders, uh, uh, people in the world, more gently, right? So I think people see that hypocrisy in us as Christians when they see us not behaving like we should behave. I mean, when half the Christians aren't acting like Christians half the time, the world sees that as hypocrisy. And so we got to be more concerned about what's going on inside the church. We got to get our own house in order. We got to clean up our own act first instead of being so concerned about what people in the world are doing. We're pretty good at trying to police the behavior of people in the world when we ought to be more concerned with policing our own behavior right here and now. So don't judge sinners outside the church, but second, judge rightly sins inside the church. And the incident that kicks off this section of 1 Corinthians is the report that Paul gets that there is a man who is actually sleeping with his father's wife. So presumably his stepmother. And this isn't just a one-time thing. This is like ongoing and open. Now, people all over may have differences regarding values of, about sexuality, but here's something I think we all agree on. Christian, secular, pagan, don't make out with your mom. Okay, we're all agreed on that. That's gross. Don't go there. E- even if she's not your birth mom, she's off limits. But listen, there was plenty of sexual immorality going on in this very cosmopolitan city of Corinth. I mean, it, it used to house... Uh, the the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of sex. And in that temple were housed a thousand prostitute priests and priestesses. Yeah, so when sailors would come into this port city, they would all of a sudden get very religious. They'd all go to temple. And there was no question about missing church. I mean, we're there. We're in the temple. We're not going to be late because, you know, you you, want to pick who you get to worship with, all right? So Corinth is known as a city full of jacked up perversions and promiscuity. In fact, apparently there was even a word that was coined back then to Corinthianize, right? So you'd say, hey, let's go out tonight and Corinthianize. You knew what that meant, okay? That was going to be a wild night. So this is a town that's very proud of its sexual freedom and tolerance. I mean, sound like any place you know, (laughs) a culture that celebrates sex with parades and awards and but again what do we expect people in the world are going to act like people in the world all right so what we need to be looking at is not out there but how many people within the church are accepting and embracing sexual immorality because what happens is when when people come to christ and they come into the church they bring a lot of the baggage with them from the world. And so, yeah, churches are full of jacked up people because we're learning to become like Jesus. In fact, when you become a Christian, you're called a what? You're a saint, right? <laughs> because now you belong to God. But we don't act like saints all the time. And yet that's what's expected. God says, be holy because I'm holy. Jesus makes us holy. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live holy lives. But what happens is we confuse holiness with love. I mean, the only other verse I think non-Christians really can quote, (laughs) other than do not judge, is what? God is love. They all know that. And if God is love, then he doesn't judge, which couldn't be further from the truth. 
Because Jesus in the New Testament talks just as much about God's judgment, his righteous anger against sin, as, as it does against, uh, as it talks about love, God's love. So when God's holiness meets human sin, it becomes righteous anger. And when his love meets human sin, it becomes mercy and grace. Now, it's up to us which one of those responses that we will receive based on how we respond to God. If we recognize our sin, we repent of it, we receive all that mercy and grace and forgiveness. But if we defiantly continue in our rebelliousness against God, then it's met with righteous anger. It's up to you. God deals with those responses very differently. He's a very forgiving God, but that doesn't mean that we can continue in a defiant, continual, habitual lifestyle of sin. And the same is true with, with the church. I mean, the church is a place of grace, and, and everybody's welcome here. But any Christian who refuses to repent and to continue in a lifestyle of sin, well, in the church, we're called to deal with that. We're not supposed to look the other way. We're not supposed to sweep it under the rug. Deal with it. And those Corinthian Christians were ignoring the scandalous sin of this man sleeping with his father's wife. And actually, they probably prided themselves on how open-minded and tolerant and loving they were. Hey, it's all good as long as it's consenting adults. And Paul said, no, no, no. You shouldn't be celebrating this. You should be mourning this. You shouldn't be gloating over this. You should be grieving over this. This isn't love. This is sick. You're being irresponsible and dangerous because this kind of behavior quickly gets out of control, spreads, and corrupts the entire church. You're putting the whole church at risk because everybody's morals are going to get lowered because here's how it works. At first, what was once unthinkable becomes tolerated. And then what becomes tolerated becomes accepted. And what becomes accepted eventually becomes embraced as good. Sound familiar? That's where we are too today. The church is to remain holy and healthy. And Paul compares it to how a little bit of yeast, a little bit of leaven and bread spreads throughout the whole loaf, impacts the whole loaf, just a little bit. It infects it all, you know, and it's kind of a corrupting influence, really. And that's why it's a symbol for sin. Sin can be just a very little thing in the church, but it impacts everything, corrupts and infects the whole thing. Or maybe think more like cancer, right? Starts out as a little disease in the body, but it spreads rapidly and can kill the body unless it's dealt with, unless it's cured or it's cut out. And so we need to understand that what we do not only reflects on ourselves, but what we do reflects on Jesus, and it reflects on his church, on his people. And when the church acts no differently than the world, then we have lost our credibility. We lose the reputation of being God's people. It's destroyed if we don't take action. So yes, judge sins inside the church. That's proper judgment. And yet some people are going to say, well, that's wrong. You can't, you can't judge. That's bad that you judge. Don't, you can't call out anything bad. Well, let me show you how this concept of do not judge gets misunderstood. Uh, last July in Massachusetts, there was a man who took the motto of Planet Fitness a little too seriously. You know this gym that says we're a judgment-free zone? He walks in, strips naked, lays his clothes on the counter and begins exercising in the nude. 
judgment-free zone, come on. But guess what? The police showed up, arrested him for disorderly conduct, lewdness, and indecent exposure. Come on, shouldn't they have been more tolerant of this man's behavior? We're not supposed to judge. It just shows how absurd and impossible it is not to judge behaviors. Of course, we have to judge what's right and wrong, but it becomes hypocritical, judgmental when we hold people to higher standards than we ourselves are willing to live by. And what's funny is, is that when the world condemns us for judging, guess what they're doing? They're judging us, right? Anytime you tell people you shouldn't do something, you're being judgmental. So the, it's ironic how judgmental the world is of people in the church, telling us not to judge. Now look, Jesus definitely doesn't want us to be judgmental. Again, that idea of, of trying to pick out a little speck of sawdust from somebody's eye when you've got a big old log hanging out of your own. Don't do that. In fact, Jesus said to that crowd, remember they were gathered around John 8 wanting to stone that adulterous woman to death? He says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. But that doesn't mean that we're not supposed to call out wrong behavior. What he's doing is calling out the hypocritical judgmentalism of those Pharisees. It's not that we shouldn't judge at all, but that we shouldn't judge wrongly. Look at what Jesus says in John 7, 24. In fact, everybody will say this one out loud together. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. See, that's what Scripture is there to do, is to show us how to make proper judgments. God's Word is our authority. We live by the New Testament Scriptures for our faith and our practice. So we judge the sin, but not the sinner. We point out the behavior, but we don't condemn the person. I remember back in high school, in my church youth group, uh, one day a college-age student showed up to speak to our class, and he said something I'll never forget. He said, if I ever see you doing something sinful against God, I'm going to come and kick your butt. And if you see me doing anything sinful against God, you come and kick my butt. Because that's what love is. Love seeks the good of the other person. And I think we're too cowardly to do that anymore. So, so what do Christian leaders and elders do when it becomes known that one of our brothers or sisters is living in continual sinful behavior? We're called to discipline them. Discipline. And you know what? The word discipline comes from the same word as disciple. So discipline doesn't mean we go and punish them. It means we help disciple them. We help them to become more like Jesus. Early in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul spoke to the, the, that church. Remember, they're all, they're all messed up, divided, dysfunctional. He says, look, I'm your father in the faith. I started the church. I led many of you to faith. Don't make me come back there as a disciplinarian. But I will if I have to, and I'll, I'll come with some tough love on you guys if you continue in that kind of conduct. That's what good parents do. Good parents don't discipline their kids because they hate them. They do it because they love them, because they want to protect them from doing stuff that's going to lead to something harmful, something destructive, uh, something, some kind of disaster. An unloving, irresponsible parent lets their wayward child go off and do whatever they want to do, right? In the same way, uh, you know, a, a good shepherd will do that for their flock, right? And, and so, in the church, as shepherds, as pastors, we don't let sheep just wander off and fall into pits and get devoured by wolves. You know, we, we practice biblical discipline to correct and reprove and rebuke wayward sheep. We plead with them and we warn them, don't go down that path 
that's going to lead to your destruction, that's going to lead to your eternal destruction if you keep going and, and lead to the potential destruction of the church, of God's people. See, as shepherds, God calls us to be accountable for his flock. And it's because we care that we call out bad behavior. And we're not perfect either, but the point, we're supposed to do that for each other. We're called to speak hard truths in compassionate ways. So Paul says, if a Christian, somebody claiming to be Christian, refuses to stop their sinful behavior, then we have to take action and remove them from the church. Treat them as if they were no longer a brother or sister in Christ. I mean, Jesus says in Matthew 18, if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would, what? A pagan or a tax collector, which was like, you know, the worst of sinners. All right. If you think that you can claim to be a Christian and continue in sinful behavior, you're, de you're just deceived. You can't do that. In fact, Paul writes to this church about the man sleeping with his father's wife. He says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, not his physical body, but of his sinful nature. Because when somebody is put outside of the church's fellowship, they lose their spiritual pastoral covering. They're going to hang out with Satan because that's what apparently they wanted anyway. And that's who, that's who they're choosing to be with. So let them experience that. They're now fair game for Satan. Why do that? What's the purpose? So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. You must not what? Don't associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral. Now the Greek word for sexually immoral there is porneia, and you hear what word comes from that today, right? Porneia is any kind of sexual relations outside of that between a husband and a wife. So it's sex before marriage, it's adultery, it's same-sex behavior, it's prostitution. The whole multi-billion dollar pornography industry is built on that word porneia. Now, we're not going to talk about that so much today. Next week, we're going to talk about God's ideal for sex. So you're going to want to come back for that one. And yeah, bring a friend. Why not? Okay. <clears throat> but look, he's not only, because he's not only sexually, uh, singling out sexual sins here, he says, or greedy, somebody who's materialistic and money hungry, or an idolater who worships something other than God, or a slanderer, Somebody who is saying destructive things to ruin people's reputations and create dissension in the church. Or a drunkard, Christians who continue in drunken behavior, or even alcoholics who refuse to get help, just keep on doing it. Or swindlers, cheats, frauds. Some of them are even running ministries, you know, living off the donations of people so they can fuel their luxurious lifestyles and private jets. I mean, religious con men and women on TV. Do not even eat with such people. And I believe you can still have contact, but don't be in communion with them. Instead, expel, purge, uh, remove, disfellowship the wicked person from among you. It's not to be mean to them, but it's actually a loving thing to do because we're trying to save them, bring them to their senses so they'll see how serious this is. They'll repent and they can be restored to the fellowship of the church. Kind of like the prodigal son, let him come to his senses so he'll come running home. And so when, we're, when we find a brother or sister continuing in that kind of wayward behavior, we're to act like broken-hearted brothers and sisters 
to try to restore them, this, this wayward family member. Understand, this is for people who are members of God's church. Christians who understand that biblically I'm supposed to be a part of a local fellowship. I'm supposed to put myself under the leadership of shepherds, of pastors, and not everybody wants to do that these days. I want to attend church, but I don't want to be committed. I don't want anybody telling me what to do, right? And it works both ways. There are plenty of churches that don't want to have to deal with this. They don't want to have to do the hard work of confronting somebody because it's not a pleasant part of leadership, and so they just don't have members. That way we don't, we don't have to worry about it. And of course, in today's society, what you can do is if, if, you, if you're dealing with your junk and uh, uh, you go to this church and they say, well, you shouldn't be doing that, well, I'll just leave and go to another church. And then you go to another one. You flip from church, church, church. Never have to deal with your junk at all. And there are plenty of churches out there who just let you do whatever you want. Hey, it's all good. God is love. We don't judge. Do what you want. But that's not the way it works here. Because this is not a permissive, apathetic, do-whatever-you-want kind of faith. And what's ironic as well is when the church does what God calls us to do and to deal with sins in the church, we get called out for being mean and judgmental. The world says, oh, you're being judgmental for judging somebody's sins. You know, instead of the person who's done wrong being the bad guy, the church becomes the bad guy. But so be it. Because we don't answer to the world, we answer to him. We're accountable to God. And Paul says something similar in 2 Thessalonians. Take special note of anyone who doesn't obey our instructions in this letter. And do not what? Don't associate with them. In order that they may feel ashamed. So they'll repent. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. So look, everybody is welcome here. But if you're a Christian who thinks that you can come and have your sins affirmed here, you're going to be sadly disappointed because we're not called to affirm sin. We're called to repent of sin. And yes, we say come as you are, but that doesn't imply remain as you are. Because the most loving thing we can do is lead you to the cross of Christ where you can be forgiven and you can experience life change and you can learn obedience and grow in holiness. Become like Jesus. And the good news is, you know what? As tough as this may be, it actually works. Because we find out in the next letter Paul wrote to Corinth that that guy sleeping with his father's wife does repent. And he is restored to the fellowship of the church. That's the way it's supposed to work. One more section we've got to cover briefly is the first part of 1 Corinthians 6 where we're told to make judgments within the church when possible. Because what was going on back then is Christians were suing each other. They were taking each other to court out in the world. And of course, America, hey, we're the land of lawsuits. Millions of cases filed every year by millions of lawyers. But it's nothing new. None of this is new. You noticing that? None, nothing, nothing's new here. These Christians were going to court with each other, which I think would have made for a very unhappy church. Can't imagine their potluck dinners. It wouldn't have been very fun. So the ideal is that we Christians, we should be able to settle those kinds of disputes within the church. Because here's what happens. We like to help each other out. We like to hire each other. We like to buy stuff off of each other. But what happens when one of those deals goes wrong? When we don't have some sort of really solid upfront understanding, maybe in writing, so there's not assumptions made or, or even worse what happens when there's incompetence when there's dishonesty when there's we're being treated unfairly how should Christians respond when something has gone wrong in a business or financial sense with another Christian in the church how do we resolve that well Paul says don't take it out into the world to be judged by people who don't have godly wisdom you ought to be able to handle that 
in the church where you do have God's wisdom. Don't air your dirty laundry out there in secular society. That's like taking your physical family to court. How shameful is that to take your brother, sister, mom, or dad to court and sue them? No, come on. Come on, your brothers and sisters, cool off. Pursue godly wisdom. And you should be able to settle this matter without litigation in a courtroom. We should be able to resolve these matters between ourselves in the church by inviting an impartial person within the church to, to mediate, to arbitrate this thing. Uh, it could be a pastor. It could be somebody with financial or business experience in the, in the issue, expertise. Somebody who's impartial, who can come in and they're filled with godly wisdom, with the Holy Spirit, they have a sense of justice, and you just agree to let them make the final decision and live in peace. I mean, this actually happens out in the world, right? Before a lot of these cases go to court, they bring in a mediator, an arbitration. Uh, and that, that should happen right here and now. There are Christian lawyers you can call in to settle it right here. Or, or Christian arbitration and mediation groups to settle these matters. That's the way it should work. But this is really important because this is a, we're talking about relatively simple civil matters. We're not talking about criminal behavior here. All right, when somebody has broken the law criminally, we don't bring them here and put them in church jail. You know, it's, we don't have such a thing. That's supposed to be handled by the judicial authorities because we're supposed to obey the laws of the land and criminal behavior is supposed to be punished by the civil authorities. And so the church, I can't believe I even have to say this, the church should never cover up crimes because that happens sometimes. You see it in the headlines. They say like, well, that, that, we'll deal with that here and now. It's one of our own, so we'll deal with it. No, that's criminal behavior, and it's not about protecting a fellow Christian. It's about protecting victims and potential victims. So you call the proper authorities to handle that. And 1 Corinthians 6, by the way, doesn't forbid Christians from suing non-Christians. I mean, sometimes you get ripped off, you get taken advantage of, and a secular person isn't going to agree to let some pastor settle the case, right? So you have to go to court sometimes to defend yourself, to seek legal recourse. And, and sadly to say, sometimes it may even happen to happen between fellow Christians. It's just too complex of an issue. There's a lot involved. And as a very last resort, you may have to still go to court. But I would say this. If you're dealing with somebody claiming to be a Christian who is ripping you off, who is lying to you, who is doing illegal behaviors, I would question whether that person is even a Christian to begin with. Because that's not what Christians do. Always keep in mind, though, how you conduct yourself because what you do reflects on the Lord and it reflects on the church. And boy, we've all seen some crazy stuff in the headlines where the name of Jesus gets drugged through the mud because some nut jobs in the church are going off on each other, fighting and stealing and, and uh, uh, all kinds of nonsense, uh, doing shameful things against each other. And nobody wins those cases except the devil. So... You got to ask, at what cost? At what, what's it going to be worth to go to court over this? How will it affect my friendship with this Christian? How will it reflect on the gospel? How will this play out in the media and in the community? Because you could win your case, but you lose your witness. And so maybe sometimes it's better to just walk away, to, to suffer the loss, to take the hit, to eat the cost, and you continue to live in peace without bitterness. Because this is a fallen, unfair world, isn't it? I mean, 
You're not always going to get perfect justice in this world. But you know what? There is a judgment day coming when perfect justice will be meted out because our God is a God of justice. And that's really bad news if you're not forgiven. Because what we're due for our sins, for our bad behavior, for our rebellion against God is we deserve separation from God forever in hell. We deserve exclusion from heaven. But God is also a God of love. And so he provides a way for, to, for us to escape the penalty that we have earned by sending his son to pay that penalty in our place. Jesus suffered that penalty for us on the cross. The sinless one was considered sinful as he bore your sins and mine on himself and carried those sins away so that we could be declared not guilty and go free. And so for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, who repented of those sins, there is no judgment day to, to fear because we've already passed through judgment. Our sins were already dealt with at the cross. And so when you stand in front of God one day, will you face him as judge or as savior? It's completely up to you, depending on how, what you do with Jesus right here and now. You're never going to get a better deal than this. I would sign this plea deal right away to confess, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, and I receive Jesus as the one who died for me.